Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of The Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from K-Hand Games. I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions. And we're here after a long hiatus to talk about homebrews. It's been some time, hasn't it, Bo? Too long, too long, but that's life. Yes, it's life, and dear listeners, we do apologize. We did have such plans, let me tell you. Uh, that's when you're in trouble, is when you actually have plans. But what did we want to start touching on today, Bo? Uh, this is going to sort of be our first uh, episode in sort of a sort of a holiday series throughout the, the fall and early winter. And homebrews are interesting in that they often operate outside of normal, I guess, economic concerns. And so you can do things like a very holiday-specific game that, you know, Nobody's going to buy in July normally, but in the homebrew community, you can release it. And if you're only doing 50 copies, you know, those are your 50 copies and you're, you're not out anything for sort of having fun with a holiday. And holidays and the homebrew sort of community kind of started pretty early on. Uh, one of the, the first games that, w- that was released in, in physical format was 8-Bit Christmas 2008. And it was just sort of a greeting. It was just basically a greeting uh, cart, although that greeting carts is a different company that was started later. <laughs> From there, Brian kept it up every year, and so there's been an 8-bit Christmas every year since, uh, up until this year, which was just released like two days ago, 2017. So he's had uh, the 8-bit Christmases on the NES. I know there was a couple years he did the Super Nintendo, and I think there was even, was there a Game Boy cartridge released at some point through someone else? Oh, through someone else, yeah. Uh, ASM Retro did uh, a couple Game Boy carts. Oh, ASM Retro also did the Heebie-Jeebie Halloween cart. Uh, Halloween and Christmas seem to be the two big ones that everybody likes, which, you know, they're fun holidays. You can either dress up in crazy costumes and you sort of have that horror thing, or, you know, it's Christmas and Santa and, you know, all that. And we can't forget the Holly Jolly NES uh, mix. Yeah, our friend Matt last year, uh, Matt Bepler, did the Holly Jolly NES mix, and that was a musical chiptune album done by uh, Human Thomas, uh, Thomas Clapone. I'm probably butchering that name too, but hey, what's <laughs> new? Um, yeah, there's been there's been quite a few homebrew games that are tied to holidays, um, just because. And, you know, it's a festive time of year, I, I think. To me, that's why, that's why it happens. I don't know. You've been involved with some of them. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's just something sort of special about, you know, getting into the holiday spirit and when you can have some sort of physical item to, to help celebrate it. I think people get excited about that. So uh, it's just something that uh, people have sort of latched on to. And I think there's sort of equal excitement between the people that are actually, you know, putting these things together Uh, And then the people that are sort of rushing out to get them uh, when they're released. Well, a lot of them, too, have been uh, time limited. So there's always been games that are, you know, done in runs of 50 or runs of 100. But a lot of the holiday ones have been done based on time, at least the retro USB ones. They're only available for like two months, once a year, and that's it. And so it's, you know, you go out, you buy it, and you get to put something under the tree and then open it up and it's a new game. And it's, you know, it's interesting. I like it. Yeah. Brian uh, Brian does a really cool thing when he, you know, he puts the game out. It's usually late October, early November, and then he will just keep making them as long as you get your order in before. I think he cuts you off January 1st. Maybe it's a, a week before that. I'm not sure. No, it's usually January 1st uh, or December 31st, whichever. Yeah. 
Uh, oh, and Kevin, our friend uh, Kevbot, has started a Halloween series as well, his Scare Carts, which they're games designed to scare you. So without giving too much away, like that was the one that we were talking about last episode that, that Kevin and I did some work on. The you know, screen pops up at some point that you don't know when, but and it, it's designed to scare you. And that is, it's not a game. Its purpose is to do that. And so you can... You can't normally do that with a with a regular game, and so the holidays provide sort of an excuse to have some fun. Yeah, and I actually got my start uh, in the homebrew community uh, working on this. I know when Brian uh, from Retro USB started the eight bit Christmas cartridges, um, you know, back then, you know, with my musical background, he he asked me to do some music, and for the first uh, I want to say four years. I was doing the music every year for the Christmas cartridge, and then it just sort of when I, when I transitioned into a programmer, uh, it just became a little too much to keep up with. So I I passed the torch over to uh, to Zai, our resident chiptune musician, Thomas. Uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Raganet? Ragane? <laughs> I think it's Raganet. Um, but he's he's a much better uh, musician than I am, so his music is is definitely a step up. Um, so, uh, I'm glad that, uh, that tradition is staying alive and this year's Christmas cartridge is really cool. It's not, uh, it's not a new game, but it's a compilation cartridge of, uh, a lot of the past, uh, is it eight years? Nine, nine, nine years. Wow. So this is the 10th year. And it has a label that will change depending on, uh, what game you're playing. It's an LCD screen where the label goes. Halloween itself has attracted, it's you know, even though the 8-Bit Christmas is kind of the one when you th- that you look to when you think of holiday things because it's been going so long, Halloween has sort of attracted an equal following with the ones that we've mentioned. But then there's also, back in 2009, 2010, somewhere in there, there was a version of Seagull, which was the first game on the HBWC. There was a Halloween version of that, the Haunted Halloween games by the Retrotainment guys. We had Greg on a few episodes to talk about their new game, Full Quiet, but they have uh, Haunted Halloween 85 and Haunted Halloween 86, which are very, like, you know, themed uh, beat-em-ups, which are, they're great games. And you know, it's interesting, because when you, when you think of it, trying to sell, you know, a very specific game outside of the season it's intended for would would normally be kind of a problem but that's again that's one of the nice things about about making homebrew games and being free from those economic some of those economic concerns yeah it's been interesting to see uh halloween sort of become such uh you know such a latched onto holiday for i guess it's a lot it's pretty easy to sort of develop characters that are very obviously you know spooky uh, it's a little bit you know easier to uh, to design stuff for that and i think halloween you know itself just has sort of a a, per- a personality that that people are drawn to because uh i don't know pe- people are getting more and more excited it seems about halloween every year that's what uh that's interesting you mentioned that because that's what got me into uh starting to look at doing halloween games was when i was considering doing art myself which types of characters would be easy to do and doing halloween you know costumes and things like that was much easier than you know the knights in armor or sci-fi vague sci-fi things i could just look at you know a picture of a kid in a ghost costume and then you know figure out how i wanted to interpret that and so i actually have some 
stuff sitting on a hard drive somewhere of like a RPG like Halloween characters. Yeah, I think it it might be a little bit easier to design for Halloween because you don't have to sort of strive for uh not necessarily realism, but but you can be a little bit more abstract with your ideas when you're going, you know, designing a monster or or a ghost or a skeleton. They're they're very sort of distinguishable uh, you know, in itself. Most of the more holiday themed games have been group efforts too, which has been interesting to watch. Uh, the Christmas games, usually somebody does programming, somebody does art, somebody else does publishing, somebody else does music. And I think most of the, a lot of the Halloween games have sort of followed suit with that. They're, they're kind of team efforts and a lot of them are, you know, almost more for the community than for any other reason. I think it's actually, I think that's sort of a microcosm of the homebrew community in general. It's been, it's been interesting to watch. Maybe we can touch on this in a future episode. Um, you know, as, as things have progressed, you know, originally it was these individual people sort of tackling most or all of these projects on their own. But as people have sort of, you know, developed their strengths and, and developed relationships with one another. Um, it's been really interesting to see, you know, people sort of say, Hey, I want, I want to do this. How about since you're good at this, maybe you can do the music and you can do the art. And it's, it's sort of built this community in itself of people teaming up to sort of produce these projects that, that maybe wouldn't be as good if, if they were doing them on their own. Well, I, I can say from experience they wouldn't be as fun without uh, without that sort of communal effort. Yeah, both in development and in playing. Yeah, building building something with other people um, when you can sort of focus on an individual aspect of a project, um, it is it's very enjoyable being able to not feel overwhelmed. You know, you have a specific duty, but it's also it's really fun sort of tossing ideas around um, with people who are, you know, in this this sort of passion project together with you. Hey, holidays bring people together. Homebrews bring people together. It all works. Absolutely. So for this episode's game review, we are actually going to try something a little different. Um, Kevin has made quite a few games. I have now almost finished one, and we were going to try to incorporate some of the stuff that we've done uh, into the show in sort of a different manner, sort of switch things around. So we're actually going to have Tim from Orab Games on to sort of take my place in the process, and I, I'll be in the hot seat. Uh, so I'm going to hand it off to them, and I guess we'll see where this goes, because I have not peeked at the questions. <laughs> Tim, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, guys. Thanks for having me on. Sweet. So we're talking about Spookatron today, which Bo has been working on for a little bit of time. Um, I think the idea for starting Spookatron, now, of course, I don't know for sure, and we're going to ask him some specific questions in a minute, but we're going to get into a little bit of uh, what I know of the history of it. Um, we were in uh, Maryland at MAGFest back in 20... 2015? Was it 2015, Bo? Uh, 2016. 2016? I don't right? know. Who knows? One of those years we were over there. Yeah, no, 2016. Um, I guess it was the beginning of 2016. That's why it seems like so long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we were checking out the arcade, and there was a Robotron 2048 cabinet. And I think he had the idea of doing 
uh, something with like a, a Virtual Boy controller before this, but I think when he saw this game and and the way the the dual sticks, you know, you move with one and shoot with the other, um, I think it sort of uh, sparked a, a creative light bulb in his head, uh, and he decided to uh, sort of take Robotron and uh, turn it into uh, sort of a Halloween themed uh, arcade shooter. Um, so that is, uh, what Spookatron became. Um, it's a pretty fun little, uh, arcade shooter. You're, you're a beta tester, right, Tim? Yeah. Uh, I actually got on pretty late to the, to the beta testing. And when did you come on the, the team? I, um, probably about the beginning of October, I think of, of just this year. So I've only been on it for like six weeks, but I, I played through the game quite a bit already. Did you do a lot of breaking? Um, you know what? The game was pretty solid by the time I got there. I only found really one hiccup in the game. The rest of it was if he was happy with the design. There was just some things I found that I thought maybe they could be tweaked, but if they enjoyed them that way, then maybe that was the way it was meant to be. Are you saying he's a better programmer than I am? Um, I'm just kidding. I won't like <laughs> <you> there. <laughs> so the gameplay of Spookatron, can you uh, describe to us, since you're uh, such a beta tester, um, you know what a basic gameplay is of this game? Yeah, so uh, with Spookatron, what you have to do is, well, I had to use the two NES controllers. So you plug one one into port one and one into port two. You flip them bad boys sideways, and you get a little double-fisted action, and you run with the left joystick, and you shoot with the right joystick. So you just run around and try to shoot these enemies as they're just collapsing in on you because he starts you right in the middle. And the, all the enemies are on the outside, and they just come flying in at you. And you have you have to move. You have to get out of there. Um, one thing he did really well with this game is that he didn't just put random enemies everywhere and just have them come in. Um, there's specific designs and themes to some of the levels, which I thought was really charming for the game and actually made for some really cool gameplay on some of the levels. Yeah, and you, you described that you have to use uh, two NES controllers turned sideways, and that's, of course, because, like the arcade game, um, you have full you know eight-way movement with the left controller and then eight-way movement with the right controller, yep. and the NES controller, you know, by itself does not have the capabilities of doing that. Um, so he, he did that, but then he took it a step further, and he developed it to where if you want to modify a Virtual Boy controller or a Super Nintendo controller, you can also use those uh, to basically take the place of the two NES controllers. Right, and I'm really excited to try those out. I haven't been able to do that yet, so hoping to get an adapter for that Super Nintendo controller and get one of the Virtual Boy controllers for him so I can I can play that. Yeah, I attempted to modify a Virtual Boy controller on my own and it went very badly, so I'm going to have to get someone to uh, to do that for me. Um, it's probably hard for you to talk about the fun factor of the game since you're so close, um, to it, but, but can you give us some sort of first impressions when you first started playing it? So I'll go back to where I first saw this. I saw this this year in April for the first time at Midwest Gaming Classic in Milwaukee. And when you walked into the Nintendo age room, there sat this futuristic looking TV that looked like it came out of the eighties though. <laughs> and this thing has like this red drop space helmet. So like you drop this shell over top of the TV and it turned it, it turned the tube red. And then you played Spookatron on it. It was, it was really crazy. So that kind of added to the charm factor of it, of playing it. But, uh, when I first picked it up, I didn't realize at the time until later that he had a couple of harder levels 
right at right off the bat in that demo there and it was just kicking my butt i looked at him and i'm like there's no way i'm getting past level three in this game if you've released this well come to find out he he did put some easier levels up front and moved those to the to the back end so um jump fast forward to uh october when he asked me to come on as a beta tester um I got I got the game and I plugged it in or put it in and, and I started playing it and I'm like, oh wow, I, I got to level one without dying. This is this is kind of neat. Okay, I kind of get what's going on now. And then uh, mm-hmm. the challenge, what made it fun was that you just don't run around and shoot all the time. There's there's certain directions and paths you want to figure out in this game. And you only have so many lives in the entire game, and then you gotta I think it's every ten thousand you get an extra life. So you really gotta be careful and not early or um what i call dumb deaths where you where you just run into something on accident where you shouldn't even done it or you weren't paying attention to the left side and shooting right and something got you but uh so that's what makes it interesting you just don't run around and shoot you gotta sometimes you gotta figure out what's the pattern i gotta go this way shooting this way and then up and shooting this way and then over and shooting this way and i, and I beat the level and um it's kind of it takes you back to the old school nes where if you you mess up too many times you've got to start over and you got to you got to keep track of your notes on these levels. So when you get there, you almost got to be ready with your notes. Say this is what I got to do, and, and and then form it. Yeah, there is some strategy involved. Um, but speaking of levels, uh, one one thing that makes this game unique, um, and I don't even think we've mentioned yet that you know Bo did a Kickstarter for this game, um, and it was successfully funded, and he reached out to all the backers, and he you know said, hey, you know if you guys who helped make this game possible, if you want to submit levels, um, you can do so. And he basically sent everyone um, the capability of designing their own levels and submitting them. So this game is sort of a compilation of many people's efforts in uh, putting different levels together, right? Yeah, this is it's really, really um, unique in that factor that he had his his buyers actually make levels for the game and being part of a team before with you, Kevin, on the incident. Um, I know a couple levels that you needed and I, I drew up, made it in there. When I get to those levels, my friends, I'm like, that's my level. I made that. It, may, it really <laughs> adds to the game for these, for these backers. So when they get this, when they get these games and they recognize our level, they're, they're just going to be, it, it's going to be outstanding for them. Yeah. I think it's special to, you know, a, as someone who's, paying you know their hard-earned money toward a game to see part of themselves in that it's it's really awesome um and i when he decided to do this game he reached out to me uh, about doing some music for it and i asked him you know basically what he wanted and he said he only wanted title screen music he didn't want any music during the gameplay uh because he thought that maybe it would be a little bit too much going on um, cause there's, it takes so much focus and effort to sort of keep track of all the enemies that are moving at you. Cause there are a lot of enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to do now is just play a little clip of the music that I did, uh, for the title screen. Uh, it's nothing too fancy, but he just, he actually sent me a couple YouTube videos of, of examples, uh, of what he sort of had in mind. Cause I, I wasn't really sure when he said he, you know, he was going to do it Halloween themed. I didn't know how sort of how Halloweeny he wanted it. Um, but he sent me some examples and I did my best to sort of take what he sent and turn it into Nintendo music. So here is the title music from Spookatron. (laughs) 
right, so that was the title theme to Spookatron. Um, what we're going to do now, it's a little bit weird bringing Bo on since Bo is one of the co-hosts of this show. But, <laughs> Welcome, Bo. Uh, we're now going to bring, yeah, we're going to bring <laughs> Bo on, who's uh, no stranger to podcasts, and ask him some questions about his, uh, his baby that he's been working on for, uh, how long have you been working on this game now, Bo? Ah, uh, too long? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it seem that way when you're working on a project? It always seems that way. I started it uh, pretty much so you'd mentioned that MAGFest visit that we did, Kevin, and I I ended up having surgery a few weeks later and then was out for about a month, and then I started it probably in April of 20... Golly, that must have been 2015, right? I don't know, man. It seems like so long ago. No, it would have been April of... uh, April of 2016, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that makes it a year and a half now. Okay, sorry. No, that's fine. Um, so, tell us, Bo, um, what, what is your kind of your educational background? What did you uh, study? Was it something with computers and programming? <laughs> no. No, I uh, did degrees in religion. Uh, that, that's not programming. <laughs> no, that's, that's not programming. Hebrew is a bit like programming, but... Yeah, yeah, you know those those foreign languages that they'll get you. Um, so what so what made you one day decide, hey, I want to make a video game on the NES platform, even though I have no idea what's going on here. Um, I've been wanting to make a game since probably uh right about the time I right about the year after high school. I'd kind of discovered RPG Maker and had downloaded some files and was looking at things and. And went off to college, and then, you know, you get busy with, with schoolwork and stuff. So I'd come back to it every three or six months or every year. And that went on for about a decade. And I, I'd try different things during the summers. You know, I'd try to do, like, Game Boy Advance programming or, uh, you know, everybody said, oh, you have to know C. So I'd sit down and try to learn whatever C was. And, I, you know, I'd never get very far. Yep. And then uh, back in 2013, I sort of decided it would have been early 2013 i decided that i was either going to learn or i was just going to give up the dream that i'd you know had for a decade and i just kind of started down the path well we're glad that you did not give up on it yeah well (laughs) uh you know there was a lot of supportive people along the way in the community and that that made a difference that's why i chose to do the nes versus uh, super nintendo or game boy or genesis so now that you are a video game programmer, uh, do you find that you are actually playing games more or less? Well, I don't think I'm ever going to consider myself a, a game programmer, but uh, I still don't consider myself a glasses wearer either 20 years later. But, um, <laughs> oh, I actually, I, when I started uh, learning NES programming, I started going back and replaying a lot of stuff and analyzing it for, you know, what they were doing uh, in terms of like effects and whatnot, and then also graphics a lot. And those are sort of, I don't know much about music. Uh, so those two areas, I've just gone back and replayed a ton of stuff. And then with design, that uh, mostly comes from Super Nintendo things. So I've been playing a lot of that as well. Now that you're not playing video games as much just for fun, what, when, when you were, what was your favorite game style and on what system? Oh, always RPGs and always Super Nintendo. Um, and then you decided, I'm going to program from the Nintendo instead? I mean, that's that's kind of crazy. Uh, Super Nintendo didn't have a community. Well, still really doesn't have a strong community like the NES does. And I figured it'd be easier to start with the NES and move to the Super. Uh, but yeah, I'm kind of happy 
with the NES and will probably never leave at this point. Why do you like RPGs? They're so dumb and boring. <sighs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go back to your sports games. I know how you like to... <laughs> I know how you like to label RPGs with a letter, like JRPG is Japanese RPG, SRPG is strategy RPG. Is there such thing as BRPG? Because they're boring RPGs. Oh, you've been, you've been waiting like years to get that one out, haven't you? Absolutely. What was the question? That There, there was, was no question. question. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let's get into your... Uh, into your game programming a little bit here um even though you have produced other games such as swords and runes and zero to x is spooker drawn the first game that you've actually programmed or have you done something before this um well i spent a couple years on zelda like and then i sort of fluctuated between some other projects uh, including family vacation sort of an oregon trail one that's that was sort of the first official one that i announced and then ended up doing Spookatron as sort of the mini game contained within that and then it just got really out of hand but um i actually redid all the programming in zero to x uh before it could be released because i wanted to add some features and stuff Mm. Uh, so the the core was done by another fellow but then everything around it from the title screen to the high scores to the flash saves like all that was i kind of had to do and then also rewrite all of his code for a different uh, assembler gotcha so that's sort of officially my first one but not really i'm not i don't count it I know that uh, when you were first starting to learn, um, you were working on sort of a port of adventure for the 2600. Is there, uh, are you ever going to go back and finish that? Oh, I almost forgot about that. Um, Yeah, that was one I used to ask you questions about. And probably not. I never, (laughs) (laughs) I never grew up playing adventure. Like the first time I played it was when I first decided that I wanted to program it or uh, port it. And I just did that because it was sort of like Zelda light, uh, at least in terms of, you know, how it looked. Yeah, you were just sort of figuring out the different room programming yeah, stuff, right? I have no interest in, in actually playing the game because I've never actually really played it. <laughs> On to um, some Spookatron questions here now. What was your inspiration behind Spookatron? Kevin and I kind of touched on this before you got on the show here, but we want to kind of hear from you what your uh, inspiration was. It was mostly motivated by two things. One was the desire to pick a project that had as many sprites on screen as possible. Because I'd started off with, with the adventure port and the Zelda likes. I was really focused on backgrounds and could never really figure out how to work with sprites. And so I couldn't think of a more sprite intensive game than Robotron with, you know, just enemies coming at you from all directions and bullets and you're shooting and running and obstacles and everything in between. So that sort of stuck uh, stuck out to me. And then also, I sort of wanted to find something that you could use the Virtual Boy controller to uh, to play with. And there's not a lot of games that use dual joysticks. And, you know, Robotron is, of course, the uh, the big one that people look to. But I hadn't really ever played that either. So I just sort of took some of the, the core concepts and then kind of made my own game out of them now back at magfest in early 2016 (laughs) is it true that you would sort of lurk behind people and stalk them when they were (laughs) playing robotron and then swarm them afterward and ask them questions about their playing experience um i don't remember asking them questions that was the guy i creeped out in portland (laughs) 
but no, I we'd sit there. I'd sit there and just watch them the play and see what they were doing and see how far they could get and see why. Oh no, I did ask him. You're right because I asked him what made it fun. Yes, um, because I couldn't <laughs> understand it. Like you die in Robotron, you die almost immediately. Like you're only playing for thirty seconds usually tops. And you know why did people keep coming back? And the same like three or four people, old timers who had, and they were some of them were working the show. You know, long white beards, and they were just. <laughs> I mean, they were making love to that machine. They were throwing it all over the ground. It was sliding back and forth. like, And they were just hammering it and loving it. And it was just the strangest thing to me. Like, what made it so addicting? Uh, because I hadn't really played it much. And Was it was it the challenge? Is that Was that the biggest answer? I don't know. I, I, I've heard, because I've done some reading since then about why people like it. Because it's often regarded as one of the best arcade games ever. And... A lot of people speak of this almost zen-like moment where they get into this mode and suddenly everything is just falling before them and they can go, you know, whole minutes or 10 minutes, 50 levels and just blow through everything. But once you lose that, it's over and you just, you know, you're done right then and there. Yeah. Yeah, it it does seem like you can get on this little this streak of just sort of you don't know how you're not dying, but somehow you're just seeing seeing paths open up. So I got to play this for the first time at Midwest Gaming Classic, as I was saying earlier, and it for a game that I'm not really much into, even though I'm an arcade kind of player, um, mainly because you die a lot in the game that frustrates me. But it is a lot of fun. As I got to testing it, I, I you know, starting from an easier level going on, I really got into it and got into the strategy of it. Can you tell us a little bit about the gameplay from from the programming aspect? In terms of how how it works to to as you program it to make the everything move on the screen and kind of play nice with each other oh um yeah so you can answer in any way you want (laughs) if it's too complicated for a question that's fine but this 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 is an assembly line podcast Uh, yeah no uh (laughs) Yeah, so it uh, Spookatron was my attempt to learn how to work with sprites, and I started basically with just the hero and got you know the eight directions moving, and then I, I think I did enemies next because I what I would do is I'd build the hero routines and then I would adapt them for the enemies, and then figuring out how to like do autonomous movement was sort of new to me, and so once I got through that, then I had you know one hero and he could move around, he couldn't do much, and then you know enemies that would spawn on the screen and then from there i added projectiles and you know deaths and then i started adding different once i started adding different types of enemies because for the longest time it was just the pumpkins Mm -hmm. things would just like come at you i never intended for the game to be as big as it was it was just supposed to be a family vacation mini game where you would die almost instantly so it would eat your quarters in the in the game and yeah so it was just pumpkins and no projectiles from the enemies and the hero could shoot and that was it and i think that was what i sent uh, i sent kevin the first copy uh, that i'd done because nobody knew that i was back to back to work and working on things and i sort of secretly sent this to him and that took about three weeks to just get the basic movements down and then after that i uh, showed it to a couple other people and they they got pretty excited and so i started adding more stuff uh, with you know, different enemies and uh, the enemy projectiles really threw me for a loop uh, just mm-hmm. because of how to keep track of them all. So it's limited to so there there are certain limitations in the game because of that. Like you can originally you could have eight uh, player projectiles, but then 
for uh, CPU time, I cut it down to six. And then there's eight enemies that can uh, shoot projectiles. There's 32 enemies. There's eight civilians that can be picked up, and they can also be killed by enemies. And I think that's it. it it's interesting because when you go to the level editor, you can see... Mm-hmm some of the programming from the backside if you go to build a level because like the first eight slots have to be or if you're using a projectile enemy it has to be within the first eight slots um if you choose random you cannot use certain things like projectile enemies because they could appear outside of those eight slots or um you can't use oh what's the other one with random i think oh it's ghosts you can't use the random the random shift because they'll shift uh uh, invincible enemy into an enemy slot, that type of thing. You snuck something in there on me that I didn't know. This was a mini game for another game? Yeah, yeah, I needed... So, like, uh, Family Vacation is kind of a loose adaptation of the Oregon Trail, and to fill that sort of hunting section, I decided to have the player go to arcades, and they could win tickets, and they could, you know, buy food with the oh, ticket. Oh, interesting. And I did not know this. I'm not, I'm not a big arcade game player. And so most of them, like when I go to play them, they last too long. They don't ever eat my quarters because I don't ever put a quarter in in the first place. <laughs> and so I needed something that would kill the player real fast and consistently. And that also had a lot of randomness to it. So the original design of Spookatron is for everything to be random almost all the time. And it was only later when the testers started to want to be able to place things in specific locations that I went back and then uh, added in the ability to not have it be random. Very cool. I had no idea. So I know that you didn't do um, a lot of the art. And what what makes this game really charming is the art. Uh, It has a really nice, charming look to it. Um, And I think uh, someone named Chris Cacciatore uh, did it for you. Do you know what uh, sort of influences he used uh, or had for the art direction of the game? And what sort of influences did you have uh, for like the packaging um, and just the the whole look that you were going for? Uh, well, I had something very different in mind when I was sort of contemplating doing the art myself. Uh, but then when I reached out to Chris, he had done at the time, now he's you know, doing actual homebrew programming, but at the time he had just been posting uh, art that he'd been working on on Twitter. And so I sort of found him through that. And he sent me back this sheet of like these really like cute uh for lack of a better word cute little tiny pixel sprites because that was my requirement was that they had to be real small and i looked at him and i was like i don't know like this isn't quite what i was what i had in mind and then the more i looked i looked at it i don't know how many times that day and by the end of the day it was like no this is definitely it like this is just awesome and they were just so cute (laughs) i guess for lack of a better word and they they all worked well with the colors like he observed all the restrictions i needed and he had a good cast in there. And, you know, I said, I'd need a werewolf and it would just come, it came back, you know, he used three colors and it looked perfect. And yeah, so I'm not actually quite sure what his influences are or were for it, other than some like sort of vague restrictions that I gave him. And then uh, just his own kind of cute pixel style. Uh, he done, he's done a lot of uh, Game Boy Color stuff is probably uh, what I've noticed to be one of his biggest influences. And your wife did the the box art, right? Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, for the actual box art, my wife had started, Elise, she had started doing some chalk art and things like that. And I was like, hey, do you want to do some art for me? 
And she always claims that she has no imagination. So I pulled together some images I found offline and sort of put them onto a sheet and was like, can you make something that sort of looks about like this? And it had a little guy and then, you know, a castle and kind of a tree. And then she just sort of went to town with her own little style and put it all together. And she drew it out with uh, chalk markers. And we had, we took a couple different sheets that she'd done and combined them. And then I sent it to uh, Kevin here and he turned it into the final box art. Yeah, it turned out really nice. And then I tried to redo that for the title screen because Chris did the uh, you know all the sprites and everything, but then like the title screen and that's pretty much it. I think I'm responsible for so the good stuff is Chris's, and then the eh, stuff is me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's got like a kind of a fun, and we tried to capture too uh, sort of a spooky font with a Halloween font for spook, and then the O is you know sort of generic. It's just a big O. And then the Tron is sort of in an 80s uh, sort of dot matrix looking computer font. Yeah, it kind of looks like it's a, a tribute to the to the Robotron or something. Yeah, it probably is somewhere in there. I mean, there were quite a few fonts uh, that, that sort of looked like that. So the uh, one thing that's unique about this game is that it uses the uh, it can use a modified Virtual Boy controller or a Super Nintendo controller. Um, obviously neither of these were made for the Nintendo. So what was the greatest challenge of designing a controller to work on the NES? Uh, so we've known for a number of years that Super Nintendo controllers would work on the NES, but uh, nobody had really used the Virtual Boy controller for, for a homebrew project. I found a link or two that described how to wire it up to work on an nes and but uh, down was b and left was a and so with that seeing that i realized that if it was registering those buttons then chances are it was going to register all the other buttons too and if you actually designed a game from scratch then you could design it to take advantage of that because it's not very fun to play with uh down and left uh, <laughs> for a and b they'd actually like found a way to oh so what had happened was they'd found a way to bridge the gaps over to a and b and make them work like a standard controller and that meant to me that meant that then down and left and a and b they were all registering at some point so what i did was i took a took a controller and a bunch of jumper wires and wired it up to a nintendo and then i created a little test program that uh, told me which button sort of registered in the uh, set of routines because uh, it's so like the super nintendo to use that you read the controller 16 times instead of okay. just eight it's the same it's the player three uh, port so if you were using like the four score that's how player three information comes in it comes on on those last eight of player one and so i just yeah read the controller 14 times because there's 14 buttons and figured out which was which and then uh, designed the game kind of around that it's crazy that you pulled it off i remember back when you started sort of you know putting out feelers to see if it was going to be a possibility and you were asking people you know if if it was going to you know if you were going to be able to pull it off of actually getting this controller to work i thought i thought that you were crazy <laughs> I, I think i even told you that there's just no way it's going to work I didn't want to tell anybody. So like when I was trying to find information on it, I was asking uh, Brian, uh, Bunny Boy, and I, yeah. but I wouldn't tell him what I was actually doing. So I would ask him questions about the Super Nintendo and secretly then make <laughs> it work for the Virtual Boy controller. <laughs> I like my secrets. 
Well, I mentioned earlier that I, I tried to modify my own Virtual Boy controller <laughs> and was just stupid about it and messed it up. But um, what'd you do? For, <laughs> I don't really want to get into that because <laughs> there are a few people that might still have respect for me out there. Mm. Um, but anyway, for the other morons out there in the world, are there is there going to be a way to like you're you're going to like offer pre modified controllers for people to purchase if they can't do it themselves? Oh yeah. So one of the one of the things with this project was I I was real secretive about it because I didn't want anybody else to sort of beat me to the punch and like steal that thunder. And I just I like developing something and then just dropping it on people. But part of that was if I was gonna make the Virtual Boy controller thing happen, I had to buy up a bunch before you know other people started buying them up. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to offer them to people when the time came. And so I bought up a good number. And yeah, I'll be selling those pre-modified for, for people to use. So you use Kickstarter as a platform to promote, um, promote and fund the game. Can you tell us about that process and if, um, if you would recommend it for anybody else in the future? Or was there some challenges with it? Uh, Kickstarter was actually really easy to use. I, I finished the game, like the core of the game was done in January and February of, of this year. And it was Halloween themed. So it was like, well, what do I do with a Halloween game in, you know, February? <laughs> and so that's why I started to look into Kickstarter because, you know, I hadn't. To me, it was an arcade game and I didn't really want to go that route and make it bigger than, you know, it should have been. But then throughout the Kickstarter process, they sort of kept growing. It was like, well, let's put 100 levels in, you know, let's add some backer support. And I wanted to find ways. You know, Kickstarter has, I've funded a lot of projects through Kickstarter and there's some that are just, you know, give me you some money. You funded a lot or backed a lot? I, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've backed a lot of projects through Kickstarter over the years and as a backer, it's always been interesting to see that difference between, you know, just handing somebody money and then getting a game a year or two later or, or three. handing them some money and then being able to you know, have some say in, in what happens. And so the level editor, which I built for the testers and myself to be able to build levels faster, ended up being sort of one of my reasons for going the Kickstarter route um, because it let other people, you know, it opened up that process to hundreds of people, well, hundreds of them people, and they could, you know, have some say in what the actual game consisted of. Because uh, the testing process had had kind of opened that up a lot with different designs coming in, and uh, actually some of the enemies are thanks to different testers who said, you know, uh, one of the testers, Tanya, she wanted stationary blocks, and so I put in stationary blocks, though I'd never intended to, and really fought her for the longest time on it. <laughs> um, but so yeah, Kickstarter as a platform, it was it was really nice to use because it allowed for a more user created game, but also the funds up front to sort of make that, that happen. And it was a nerve wracking 30 days though. I'll give you that. Like you're sitting there watching, you're updating all day, every day, just like eh, it, I don't like to be online that much. So it was, and that was going on during the Midwest gaming classic. And I kind of remember you being on, on edge a little bit about that. And, and you even mentioned that you, you didn't like the anticipation of it. Yeah, well, I set the funding pretty low since the game was mostly done. It doesn't it doesn't seem like it was done because it's now, you know, been six months and it's, you know, on the verge of being released now. But the programming of the core, I don't think I've changed anything in the last almost year. And 
it had by the MGC, it had already passed that. But you know, just because you set the funding low doesn't mean you're not hoping for more. Right. And you know, what if some people back out? And so, like, we ended up crossing uh, one a stretch goal right at the very last, like, thirty minutes. Somebody pushed it over a considerable amount, and then two weeks later, when I got the bill, two people hadn't paid, and suddenly it was down like six, seven hundred bucks. And it was like, ah, oh, jeez, like that—that's rough. That's and then with stretch goals, you end up you know giving stuff away for free. So it's like I'm giving stuff away for free, but yet. I don't have all the funds that sort of were there to make that happen. And uh, backers don't see that. And it doesn't show people that back out. And so it's, uh, that was sort of rough. But So you mentioned that uh, it's gearing up for release. I know you're going to be sort of fulfilling these, these orders pretty soon. But once you have fulfilled, you know, all the Kickstarter backers orders, uh, where can someone purchase Spookatron who maybe wasn't there for the Kickstarter? And are there going to be any sort of, additions of the game that uh, are new that you know weren't part of the campaign that was one of the weirdest things to me with with the kickstarter process was for 30 days you're sitting there and you know it's your life basically you're watching it all day every day and then a week after the campaign ends you get people popping up that are like hey i've never heard of this uh can i still get a copy <laughs> you're like how have you not heard of it it's, it's everything there's nothing else in the world and so yeah over the last like six to nine months if well no I guess it is almost nine. Um, there's been quite a few people who have asked about uh, sort of a regular edition, and I wasn't going to do one originally, but I'd sort of left myself the option. And one of the things that I, I chose to do was to make the level editor exclusive to that campaign. So it, when I go to do the regular edition, it will not have the level editor in it because I want to sort of respect the people who and uh, honor their their support the people who who backed it ahead of time like i i want them to get something special i i can't stand when projects mm-hmm. end up giving away the more special things uh, after the fact it's like well we helped we're the ones who helped you get it there like give us something like show your gratitude in some way and then you know the next guy down the line gets something you know twice as good and so i, I didn't want to do that i wanted to to really honor the backers commitments and the only exception to that is so like there there's the Kickstarter edition which is a CIB uh, standard NES box and that has the level editor in it. Then there's also something that I have I have done over the years. It's called the numbered edition. Uh, so N A numbered edition mm-hmm. edition uh, because you you end up adding to it. And I only ever do a hundred of those. And if you have the previous one, you can get sort of the same number. So you know somebody will have you know all sevens or all. Uh, 60s or you know whatever and i always give them a chance to sort of secure their copy before i offer it up to other people Uh, the kickstarter was sort of the exception to that and those come in sort of a special box they come with uh, a virtual boy back piece i I 3d printed little uh, back pieces that slot into the battery pack slot and then it's got a few little other bells and whistles with it and any of the unsold ones, those also have the level editor, but any of the unsold ones will still be available for the general public after until they're gone. And then that's sort of it for the level editor. And then the regular edition will have different artwork and then uh, be a CIB and have a no level editor. You have yet to say where someone can buy this game. <laughs> oh, I, I have a website, uh, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, I don't go there very often, but it's soulgooseproductions.com. Uh, I need to start 
I need to start a pre-sale, I guess. I, I suppose it's time now. Like I'm building the Kickstarter stuff the last two weeks I've spent putting stuff together and it's, you know, I'm getting ready to flash the final version of the game and ship them out. Awesome. Nice. So I'm going to go a little off script here and um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, uh, what are your feelings on printers? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that has been the, the hardest part of this project has not been the game itself. I mean, cause that code is funny. You can always change something and there's really no repercussions unless you really break something, but you can always go back to an earlier build. But mm-hmm. when, in terms of physical materials, that has been the biggest holdup. So like the game could have been released months ago, but printers, man, (laughs) and one company in particular who I I will not name, but man, they have been just terrible. So a couple weeks ago, I ended up finding a printer in a, you know, mall parking lot, one of those nice Craigslist deals and sort of rebuilt it. And now, now I finally have a working printer, but the, the stuff that was actually printed off, I had to have a friend, Aaron E. He helped me out. He printed a bunch of it. I got a few things from my first batch that, that didn't look terrible, so I, I went with those. And, yeah, physical production. It is a drag. <laughs> so, on, on the, with your Kickstarter, what was your, uh, your original date that you wanted to get these released, and, and have you been able to meet that? Uh well, no, I missed it by, it was supposed to be out in October and now it's November and I hated missing that. You have good reason though, right? Uh, well, there's, you know, the, besides production things, there's been a few life things. Uh, my wife got a job in a yeah. different state. I had to pack up the house and move it. We had, I was in Portland for two weeks for the Portland Retro Gaming Expo and visiting family and like mm-hmm. just sort of everything fell at the wrong time. Um, We'd been looking for a house and a job for her back in uh, the summer, and it took three months. And of course, they, you know, uh, she got the job uh, two weeks before we needed to leave for Portland, and like the week that I was supposed to have everything done, and then printers are crapping out on me, and uh, the die cutter that I needed showed up dead on arrival, and thing after thing. So yeah, I've missed the deadline a bit. It's still going to be out uh, this fall. It is pretty much ready to go um you know i just don't want to i want to be able to release everything at once and with this project there's been a lot of little pieces like memblers he did the uh controller adapters for me there's 3d printer pieces that i have to like print off there's there's some other things and so putting together sort of the big package is is difficult as far as missing deadlines go this i mean one month is not too bad yeah, but you know, you don't want to set that precedent for yourself. It's like, oh, my first project, I'm one month. The next project, I'm three months. And it's like, no, no, no. Let's 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 try to be on time. And I've backed enough things over the years that have still not come out that it, you know, I you want to try to try to hit that deadline, I guess. Have you gotten any nasty grams from people pissed off that it isn't there yet? Surprisingly, no. So like, I. I updated the, I have not been real great with the Kickstarter updates because, um, well, I know what I'm doing all day long. Everybody <laughs> else does too. And I got a couple people in the beginning of October, like, Hey, when's this going to be out? Hey, or is it going to be here by Halloween? And so I sort of sent one in mid October that was like, ah, it's probably not going to be done because I'm in a different state and I, I'm not even near, near my stuff. 
And not since then, not one person's asked. And now I feel really bad. Like when they don't ask and don't complain, you feel even worse. So <laughs> I gotta, I've been waiting for this episode to come out to sort of update them so that hopefully all of those wonderful backers who may or may not be listening, they've been so patient and thank you for your support. And uh, yeah, this is what's been happening with the project. All right. So we've got all the hard questions out of the way now. We're going to move on to more fun questions. Some of these we've asked to uh, the various people we've had on the show, and some of them are brand new fun questions. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. So we're going to start with the easy one. What is your favorite homebrew of all time? Oh, man. See, that's a tough one. Um, I Haven't I answered that on previous episodes? Who cares? Answer it again. Oh. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about my favorite one yet. It's not out yet. Uh, there has been a game that I've been testing for somebody that is, I will call it, pretty much the best homebrew game ever made. It's it's amazing. And we will have an episode about that very soon. So the answer is not Quest Forge? No, it's Quest Forge is up there. It's like within the top five. You know, Rob's Mad Wizard's up there. That's probably like number two. Brad Smith's Lizard demo, that's up there at like number one or number two, maybe number three. And that's just the demo. I just, I really like that demo. It's very good. I guess that's a suitable answer. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I like, I probably shouldn't talk about the one at all, but you know, it's hard. So tease. So who is your favorite homebrewer of all time? Oh man, these are tough questions. I, I I did not pick out these are these, the easy ones. I did not pick out these questions to ask people. These are Kevin. Uh, he puts <laughs> makes them make tough decisions. I just let them make broad, sweeping decisions. Favorite homebrewer is hard. Uh, there's a lot of people that I respect in the community, and a lot of people who have done a lot of things for the community. You know, Rob has done. He's put out so many high quality games that it's easy to respect him for just the professionalism that he brings to everything. And there's people like Kevin and uh, Brian, uh, retro USB Brian, who have taken the time to teach others and help them along their way. And I would not be doing this without their help. And uh, Michael Swanson as well, MRN. He, he really took a lot of time with me once I transitioned from the nerdy nights and Kevin's help to sort of broader stuff. Um, and I don't know. It's tough. Oh, and in terms of games, people like uh, Morph Cat, he did a, the Super Bat Puncher demo. Like when you when I think of homebrew, those are the names I think of these these people that have done just some amazing work. Uh, Derek from Gradual Games. And I'm going to leave a whole bunch of people out. And I'm trying to cover all my bases because that's a really bad question. <laughs> I think you stepped around it really well. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel bad because a lot of the people who are sort of the ones that have figured out, you know, all the stuff back in the day, I don't think they get a lot of love. So, uh, we got to give, we got to give props to the OGs like mm -hmm. Memblers who, uh, that like I talk to all the time that I, I don't even, I forget to even mention him because he's so close. Uh, a lot of these, these people I talk yeah. to on such a regular basis and, They've all sort of uh, come down off their pedestals. I, you know, when I started homebrewing and looking into things and learning, it was like, oh, these big names. And then, you, you know, you meet them and they're, it's the guy sleeping on the floor of your hotel room or, uh, <laughs> you know, this random person you, you meet at a game store who's like, can I give you a hug? 
And I'm like, uh, oh, that was that me. Was who, yeah. That was definitely me. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird, but all right, let's do it. And uh, or like Brian, who you know, just this Hawaiian shirt dude, and you're like, okay. Or or the, you, then you get people out of the blue that you've never heard of, uh, like Greg and and Zach and uh, Tim, uh, Thomas, Jeez. Tim, yeah, no, Thomas, they're a music guy. Oh, and Tim too. But they just appeared in Portland one day with a fully finished game. And you were like, this is awesome. Who are you guys? And they turn out be, to be <laughs> really awesome guys to hang out with and like talk to. And so it's, yeah. uh, you have the original guys. And I'm not an original, you know, home brewer. I didn't start until 2013, which to me at the time was like, oh, this, this is old news already. This has been going on for eight years. Like everything's already been done. I'm just going to try to have some fun here and not realize that like when I got into it, it was sort of uh sort of a peak time when a lot of people were getting into it and some of the some of the, the best was still yet to come uh, which was shocking to me oh yeah and i'd say it's still to come because there's some there's some awesome looking stuff that's uh sort of coming out soon oh yes all right so i said those questions were easy <laughs> but this one's going to be really easy for you what is your favorite episode of Seinfeld? Oh, no. See, that... <laughs> what is wrong with you? I I really like the engagement when, when George is sitting there contemplating life. They have the pact. We're not men. No, we're not men. It's just... I like that one. We had a pact. <sighs> all right. Well, that's all we got. You got anything more, Tim? Or anything more you want to say, Bo? I'm good over here. Thanks uh, for having me on. This is this was a lot of fun. Hey, thank you for coming on and doing the hard work. It's been sort of weird to figure out how to incorporate full sort of reviews and analyses of our own work, and you've been you've been great with that. And it's it's been well. It's nice to be on this side of the hot seat for once. <laughs> it's kind of fun, isn't it? It's less hot. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. You just make it up as you go along. <laughs> That's all there is to making games, just making it up as we go along. All right. Well, Bo, I, I think you did so well that I'll have you on for the rest of the episode. What do you say? Oh, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Tim. We'll see you again soon. Yep. Thanks, guys. All right. So every episode, we ask you guys to write in some questions. Um, they can be good questions, bad questions. We don't care. We just like, uh, getting some feedback and sort of seeing what's on your brain. Um, and this time we got a question, uh, from Adam Goulet and the question was, Oh, I lost the question. Basically the question was, uh, if we were stranded on a desert Island and you could only pick three games from the NES, uh, what would they be? And why? And I'm going to sort of uh, annotate this question and require us to both... Uh, two of the games can be from the NES's lifespan, uh, either licensed or unlicensed. Uh, but the third game, I'm going to require that it be an aftermarket game. So it can either be a homebrew or a hack. Um, yeah, so do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um... You can go ahead. I've talked a lot this episode. I do apologize. Don't ever apologize, Bo. I love hearing you talk and chiming in with three words here and there. Um, so I think I'm going to go with my first game being, and this might be sort of trite, but I'm going to pick Super Mario 3. Really? Um, for two reasons. Well, for a lot of reasons. But I think the main reason is... Uh, 
it's a longer game if you don't take any warps. So I think, you know, when you're stranded on this island, you have lots of time to think about life and, and sort of, you know, you got nothing but time on your hands. So for Super Mario 3, you would have lots of worlds to play through, lots of levels in the worlds. And they're also sort of diverse that I don't think it would get old, uh, quickly. And I know that I've played through the game, you know, hundreds of times in my life, but there aren't many times that I've actually gone through every world. Um, and honestly, I don't even think I've ever beaten World 7. Uh, those plants are tough. Um, but I think it would be a, a good uh, sort of challenge and, and just fun to play through, you know, a long sort of leisurely play. You don't you don't agree with Super Mario Three? Uh, no, I'm not good at platformers. You know that. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So for my second game, I'm going to pick uh, a game that has started to get some love. Oh no! Uh, the past couple of years, but what? I think I know what it is. <laughs> no, I don't think you do. I'm gonna pick Friday the Thirteenth. Not Space Shuttle Project. No, I actually considered Space Shuttle Project, but all of the levels in Space Shuttle Project are, I don't know, it's, it's, there is some diversity to it, um, but a lot of the levels are the same. And that's funny that I'm saying that because on Friday the 13th, you know, it, it's a pretty quick game when you know what you're doing, but there's something about this game that I just, I can't get tired of it. The, the sound effects, uh, are kind of annoying, the, you know, the music, um, but it's so different every time you play it that I think I would get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And I do every year I, I play through it. I didn't get to do it this year for Halloween. I, I try to every year, but, uh, with, you know, all my vacation stuff going on, uh, it just, I didn't have the time, but man, that, that game's so fun. So that's my second choice. And then for my third choice, which has to be a homebrew or uh, an aftermarket game of some type. I'm going to pick The Legend of Zelda Randomizer because if I didn't pick it, you know, Legend of Zelda would be one of my two, you know, licensed games that I'd pick. But since I know that game forwards and backwards, I think I'd get tired of it. And with the randomizer, um, it sort of places all the items randomly in the world and every time's different. Um, so I think that I could play that forever and it would always be a challenge because you would constantly be sort of trying to burn down every bush and bomb every wall and you just never know where anything is. So I think that would be a lot of fun. So, Bo, I'm going to pass the question to you. I don't know how, but I, I completely spaced Legend of Zelda when you mentioned the question. And I'm gonna have to throw that down. Uh, that's that'd be the one. Definitely taking that. I still have yet yeah. to play. Th- I mean, I for a while I was playing through it like every year, and just uh, it was. It's one of those games that makes me want to make games and want to make yeah. better games. And just the design of it is so good. I would definitely definitely take that. And the graphics are so simplistic, and the music is so limited, but you never get tired of seeing them or hearing them. So nope. I would definitely take Zelda. Oh, and I have yet to ever play the Master Quest, so that'd be sort of fun uh, to eventually get to one of these days. Uh, Legacy of the Wizard is another one that I would pick. It's a game that my cousin gave me. I think I have the picture right here, which you can't see. Uh, But 
gave it to me in fourth or fifth grade. It was, uh, I, th- I think he'd gotten a Super Nintendo or he, his mom had told him that you know, he'd get a new game if he gave us one of, uh, one of his old ones. So I got Legacy of the Wizard in box and everything. And I've never beaten it other than with uh, cheating once. And it's just one of those games that I can continually pick up and play and not finish and always want to play a little more, but then get stuck and I can't finish it. And just the brokenness of it is, uh, is what makes it fun for me, getting to those spots that you're not supposed to get to and things like that. Huh. Yeah, oh man, I could play that all the time. I need to give it another run this year. And then for homebrews... I'm not quite certain. Uh, I hate to mention it again, but uh, Lizard is up there as probably one of my favorites. Uh, the release will, you know, sort of solidify or destroy whether that is the case. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That's um, And the fact that it's all done by one person to me is, is interesting, even though I end up usually working with other people for, for different parts of projects. I like the idea of being able to do everything yourself. And it's one of those games like Legacy of the Wizard, which is probably why I like it, where you're not like in a hurry. Mario and all that always had a timer and a time limit or things jumping out and trying to kill you or, you know, enemies scrolling on and attacking you. But Legacy of the Wizard's very laid back. You can just sort of explore at your leisure, kind of like the later Metroids, uh, the first one I'm not a huge fan of. But uh, yeah, Uh, so Lizard is up there. Huh. Those are good answers. Different, well, probably, think, but yeah, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, well, I, I think that this question was good because I think it gave uh, listeners maybe a little bit different side of of our personality that they uh, typically get to uh, hear. Um, so, as always, if you have a question that you want to write in, uh, you can write us at our email address at nesassemblyline at gmail.com. Um, and we will read them and ask them, uh, and answer them on a future episode. Um, and if email is not your style, of course, you can contact us, uh, many ways, you know, Nintendo H personal messages, you know, write us at Twitter. I'm at a ton of glaciers. Bo is at soul goose. I'm on Nestev too. You can always get a hold of me on Nestev. You can get a hold of Bo on Nestev. I will never go back there again because it scares me. Um, but it's a great place for very smart people, um, which I am not one of. And, uh, yep, so that's it there. Well, it has been a busy fall, that is for sure. Uh, even, you know, between life and all these other things. But one of the biggest and most enjoyable parts of the fall has been was the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. Yeah, I mean it's it's always really sort of it's it's awesome in itself because you know you're surrounded by retro gaming enthusiasts, but as a developer it's also incredible because you sort of get reconnected uh to, you know, seeing close friends who you've, you know, developed friendships with over the past few years and it sort of recharges you um as far as like an enthusiasm level and and just wanting to get back and create, you know, just for the sake of creating because you're surrounded by people who just love it as much as you do and this year's portland was great with uh just the 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 sheer amount of people that were there yeah uh well you of course uh, tim was there uh jason who does some retro usb support stuff brian retro usb himself um sergio was there he's done music for some games did we we just did feature one of his oh yeah uh, yeah, yeah his, yes. his moon uh, track. Or your DuckTales theme, right, Kevin? 
Uh, <laughs> yes, the DuckTales theme. I definitely uh, got a got a few emails on the oh, that title. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, people. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, they know their people stuff. are passionate about being accurate, and you know, to me, it's the Ducktales theme, but that's not its proper name, I guess. The haunted Halloween guys, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. So Greg and uh, Tim, different Tim, and Zach, the artist, uh, they were all there. Chris uh, goes by Optimon online he yep. was working on pyronaut and then he had his uh homebrew game raleigh there which was sort of available to to check out and play and we had uh we had a couple listeners that popped up oh didn't well we? no i mean yeah i think they they all listen but <laughs> uh <laughs> no, nathan tolbert was there and then oh and uh the i was really surprised uh standing there and this guy came up to me and he was like hey do you want to check out what I've done? And I was like, huh? <laughs> he was like, I, I make, I make uh, games for the NES and the Game Boy. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Like, this is random. Because um, I tend to try to keep up and keep track of, you know, most people. And it was interesting. It was, uh, he goes by PSC online. And he was doing a Mario Kart adaptation for the, the NES and the Game Boy. He just walked up and, you know, asked if he could pop it in to the, the AVS. And sure enough, we sat there and played and he sort of told me what he was doing. And that was just neat. Oh, and the the one guy was back. Uh, the He's young. He's like 13 or 12. Yes, that dude is my yeah, hero. He was fun to fun to listen to and catch up with. We saw him last year. Yeah. Always so enthusiastic. Hey, that's what you need. You're not going to make games for old systems if you're not enthusiastic. It's really cool seeing someone so young be interested in such an old language, though. It's it's really awesome. It is. Oh, Steve DeLuca, who did the Goofy Foot, uh, he was there. DeLuca, love that guy. And yeah, and I only bring all these people up because these these events are great ways to kind of meet real developers, whether they're sitting at a booth or walking around or, you know, getting dinner afterwards. They're real people, and and they're friendly, and they're nice, and yeah. If if you can ever make it to a, a one of these conventions, some of the bigger ones, or even the smaller ones, I know there's one this weekend in in Syracuse, and there's a couple people there that make games, and you know, come talk, come out and talk, and 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 meet some people. It's a it's a good time, and it it wouldn't be fun without without other people. Can I tell my my PRGE story of the study hall? So, uh, there was a booth behind us, and before the show started, um, this was was this Friday night. Bo, uh, we're you know we're all setting up, and Friday night's sort of the night that the people that are you know manning the booth sort of can go around and, and scope out the deals before it's open to the public. Um, and Bo comes up to me and he goes, "Hey, man, like." the the guy in the booth behind us has a copy of study hall and i was like oh you know that's really cool because as a developer i can't tell you how cool it is to like see something you've made like that either you know someone else has or someone else is selling like just stumbling across one of your games is really fun i remember you know i was in toronto uh doing the nesathon and seeing one of my christmas cartridges i think the 2012 uh the one that I, you know, was actually my game um, for sale in this glass case in Toronto. It was just really bizarre. Anyway, I was like, oh, cool, this guy has study hall. So what's cool about 
sort of going into the public, you can you can gauge people's true feelings, uh, you know, on your games because when you when people know you've made a game, they might be a little bit more sort of hesitant to tell you things they don't like because they don't want to hurt your feelings or whatever. So I went up to this guy. And I was like, oh, you know, cool. I see you have study hall. Can you tell me about this game? Um, and he just launched into sort of how much he loved it, how he was one of the first in line to pre-order it. And, you know, he was looking forward to this game for so long. And it was really cool getting someone's sort of true feelings uh, about the game, you know, without revealing that I was the one who made it. You're um, so mean. So. I mean, that's not really mean, uh, is it? Well, it depends what he says. Oh, he he had nothing but good things, thankfully. I didn't want to have to murder someone uh, <laughs> in Portland. Um, but yeah, he had lots of good things to say. And he, he said there was, uh, he had a friend, I guess, in, in Phoenix or something who, who was let down by the game. And I was like, oh, can you tell me what he didn't like? And I don't even remember if he had a good reason for not liking it, but... Uh, then, you know, at the end of the conversation, as I'm walking away, I was like, oh, you know, by the way, I made that. <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, in Portland, a lot of these shows are fun, too, because they will have either exclusive releases to the show or a uh, game will get its initial release there. And so this year there was the Cowlitz Gamer's second adventure, which was uh, the art was done by MT. The programming was done by somebody and uh, it was been released by uh, John Hancock, the immortal John Hancock, who uh, SW11ist, who he he has a I think a YouTube channel. No, he does have a YouTube channel. Um, and he raises money for the Children's uh, Justice Advocate. If I got those in the right order, but yeah, he raises yeah. money to help kids uh, through releasing brand new games. Uh, Mike Tomlinson, who runs uh, Good Deal Games, I think. He had a new Sega Genesis game, and what? Uh, I think there was one more exclusive one. Uh, I had no I'm money this a, year, so I couldn't buy anything. Yeah, I'm having a brain fart. I I don't remember. All, all I remember is the Hancock games, and then that Genesis. Oh game. yeah, I guess John had uh, the Callitz Gamers first adventure, and then also Tortoises. So yeah, sir, there's some there's some cool exclusive games to be had, and it's always you know as someone you and I who have gone there for a few years now. The people that can't attend, uh, they always try to sort of uh, get us to maybe, you know, pick up a copy or two for them. So it's always a little bit of a, you know, not a hassle, but it's it's always, you know, a little bit of fun trying to man a booth while picking up a game before it sells out. Yep, a lot of fun. Oh, and uh, the show itself wouldn't be possible without uh, Rick and Toby and the third guy whose name I can never remember. <laughs> they all, I mean, they provide this wonderful space for retro gaming, and they really put a lot of uh, emphasis and love into the homebrew side of things, and, and so uh, very thankful yeah. for that. Definitely should give them a shout out, because they, uh, they did put all of our games on the front page of their website uh, a couple days before the expo opened. Oh, that's right. So oh. They did give us some hype there john riggs was there too i don't riggs i don't know if he had um a game though no i asked him if he had any of his hacks there he said he, he brought a couple but he he was mostly selling uh licensed and unlicensed stuff from his collection oh okay okay so i didn't miss anybody i there, 
there's always somebody you're going to miss and forget about. And I always hate doing that. But yeah. Uh, so if that's you, we apologize. Yeah, pretty. that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. But yeah, there are shows, conventions around the country, not just Portland. MGC is a good one. The one in Milwaukee. Uh, even little shows like I went to Long Island a couple years ago and there was, you know, three or four of us sitting there like all day. You could just sit and shoot the breeze and talk and, you know, pick up games. and. Yeah, there's one here locally uh, to me called Emerald Coast Con. I think that's going on this weekend, actually. Oh, you're doing a panel, um, right? Uh, no, that was last year and that will never be again. <laughs> the panel nobody went to. Good, good pull. See so yeah, what else has been going on in the uh, in the community. I mean, there's so much has gone on in the last like two months. Uh, give me a few things, and we'll try to cover the rest next episode. Well, the one that comes to mind uh, first uh, last night, Brad Smith sent out an email about Lizard, um, which has been in development for some time. He said that uh, it should be shipping in December. I so uh, we'll cross our fingers there. Very excited for that one. Yeah, I know that's been on your short list uh, of homebrew, you know, best homebrew of all time. Well, the demo, it's just so good. But he switched one of my favorite features for the final release. So I'm, I'm like on pins and needles waiting to see if it's uh, still going to be right there at the top for me. I, I don't see how it won't be. I mean, that guy is as, you know, just a programmer in itself. He's incredible. Um, but some of the ideas uh, that he's had, um, I know he he posts some some gifs. I'm gonna say gif because that's both what I've always said and second what the creator of the format said it's supposed to be pronounced. Anyway, what do you mean gifs. Uh, we yeah, we won't get into that debate. But uh, Brad has been posting some images of you know just some animations from his game and graphically it's just it's just a beautiful work of art so i'm very, very much excited. looking forward to that music too the music is some i'll pop on i think it's track uh, 11 or so and just listen to it for a good half hour at once it's just great um i know tim uh mega mario man who released tailgate party he started working on a new game and uh, it's like an isometric yeah oh yeah <laughs> that guy thanks tim um he started on a new isometric uh, survival horror game which looks pretty promising people look to be pretty excited about that yeah oh and speaking of people fulfilling kickstarter rewards uh collector vision is finally releasing a couple of the projects that they had funded uh, a couple of years ago Okay. Justice Beaver for the Super Nintendo, and then Sydney Hunter and the Caverns of something for the Super Nintendo as well. But there's there'll be an NES port of that one in good time. And I know personally, uh, one of the things I've been looking forward to most, Sly Dog Studios. Rob oh, yeah. has uh, released the Black Box Challenge, um, which you can buy from Infinite NES Lives. That is an incredible game and it's a very very big game so i'm glad that rob was finally able to get that one out by himself and, and get that out for sale yeah if you missed the kickstarter that took place a couple years ago this is your chance to pick up sort of the regular edition it comes in a nice shell uses all new parts a label you know it's a game so uh what else what have i missed here there have been a number of projects sort of announced or returned to in the last month or two uh, there was a guy making a game a few years ago who had gotten pretty far, then just disappeared. Uh, you know, life life happens, and he's back and working on uh, stuff. A game called Adversary. 
I think, uh, Doug Fracker, 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 yeah. uh, who made Vigilant Ninja, Vigilant Ninja 2, uh, which was released. We've talked about that before. Doug F. He uh, is working on one for the competition uh, that's coming up in January. He also released the soundtrack to uh, Haunted Halloween 86. Yeah. I think he put it online or something. Yeah, I think he cleaned up the music uh, when they ran into some trouble with their music engine. And so I think he's responsible for that, if I recall. And I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. So thank you in advance. Uh, He will correct you, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love a good dedicated listener. Yeah, thank you, Douglas. Uh, Sword of Iana, which was a, is an MSX homebrew, is being ported also to the NES, which is always, it's always interesting to me when, like uh, we had with Alter Ego, where uh, either Spectrum games, MSX games, other homebrews get ported then to the NES. It's always sort of a fun process to watch. Yeah, there's definitely a lot out there. Oh, Action 53, Volume 3 is finally set to be, not finally, it's only been you know, six months, is set to be released uh, pretty soon. I think they're gearing up for production now that uh, Rob's uh, Black Box Challenge is out. That'll be through Infinite NES Lives. Very cool. Very cool. And of course, the Xmas 2017, which we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, is available for purchase uh, right now on RetroUSB.com. Uh, it's 72 bucks. It's, you know, it's a steal for nine games. Yep. Plus that LCD label. Oh, yeah, that's super cool. I think that's the only reason it costs more, too. Yeah, for sure. Then it can actually detect, like, which orientation the cartridge is in. So, like, if you're playing it in your top loader, it, like, flips the label so it's facing the right direction. Then if it's in the AVS or the front loader, like, I don't know, it's, it's just really cool. He, it's, he always seems to think of everything, and I don't understand how he does it. That is Brian. That's just how he works. Oh, Brian. But I know that uh, you and I spend a lot of time in uh, Discord chat, um, but it looks like they have both made this Discord chat the official chat of Nintendo Age. Uh, so there's a Nintendo Age channel, and then there's a sub-channel inside that uh, that people have started for actual NES development talk. Um, so if you, uh, if you want to join the chat and sort of hang out with other like-minded folks, uh, either just video game related or development related, um, there is a link, uh, on Nintendo Age to that Discord chat, the new official chat of Nintendo Age. Funny that that's come back as a thing, not, not from a, I mean, Nintendo Age had a chat years ago, but you know, the beginnings of the, the NES homebrew community, there was IRC, which I mean, that was a huge thing where people would talk about emulators and talk about development and like just figure stuff out in real time as opposed to, to forums or back then it was even a mailing list. Uh, you know, everybody would get those emails about a topic that they'd subscribe to. And so it's just it's interesting to see chat is still alive and well and that is helpful to people for getting stuff done and so if you want to come talk with people please do there's some convenience there like with this chat you can sort of you don't have to be there all the time you can step away and live your life and when you come back you can go you know scroll up and and read what you've missed and you can ask people questions and they'll get to them when they're when they can um it's it's i think it's a little bit more personable than than a forum because you can sort of create channels for specific topics and you know invite people that you want to be there just so there's not a lot of sort of outside noise uh 
sort of convoluting everything. It's been fun. I like it. I'm glad that it's a, a thing. One of the things that I really enjoy about it is it's, it's a quick way to get uh, to explain yourself and not be misunderstood. So if you're asking about stuff and you're getting weird answers that you feel are above your head, you can quickly ask, you know, do you mean this or this? And it's like, oh, no, I'm just I'm not using the right terms or explaining it the right way. So you're not even answering my question. Let's, you know, figure that out as opposed to, you know, a forum post where you get 10 replies that aren't uh, actually relevant to what you're doing. <laughs> that's a little that's kind of what I was getting at with uh, all the, the convoluted noise of people. Ah, that's in. what you meant. See, um, even right there, it's yes. worked out in real time. It's much easier. <laughs> See, if we were in chat, that would have just gone way easier vocal is even easier but <laughs> i know i was just teasing um but i do want to take the time right now to make an exclusive announcement oh, ooh, is that uh, okay yeah i think it's happening right now dear listeners you're the first to hear that drum roll can you give me a drum roll uh no okay um i'm going to do a homebrew calendar yes! for 2018 oh really it's happening. It's happening. So, uh, all of you developers who are listening to this podcast, if you want me to use your games for the 2018 calendar, send me a message in some way, Twitter or Nintendo Age or email or Discord chat, any way Maybe you the want. assembly line um, Gmail? Oh, yeah, we do have one of those. <laughs> NESAssemblyLine at gmail.com if you want to shoot me an email. Um I will be putting together this calendar in the next, uh, you know, couple weeks just so we can get them printed and made before the new year. Um, so, yeah, let me know because uh, I need 12 games and I'm tired of using my own. So uh, let's do this. And uh, you'll just have to give me a little write up of the game uh, and a screenshot um, that I can sort of blow up in uh, nearest neighbor format so the pixel edges stay uh, sharp. Uh, and yeah, we'll get it, we'll get it going. It's going to be pretty. I just flipped my calendar over to November and I see uh Brony blaster there smiling back at me. So, yep. I'm excited to get this new calendar going. So let's do this guys. And you said you were never going to do another one. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's disheartening when I get, you know, X number made and then X divided by two or three is what's actually sold. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm now that I have a, a good full-time job, I'm not doing this to make money. So uh, we'll put it up for a really good price. <laughs> a little oh, bit, okay. you know, a guy's got to pay his bills. I think you're just trying not to lose <laughs> money at this point, but Hey, whatever it yeah. takes for you to get that yeah. thing out. I was really sad when you said you weren't going to do anymore. Well, I'm, I'm dramatic with these things. I always say that I'm, retiring from programming too and it never seems oh, to happen geez, so I, I don't it doesn't even worry me when you say that anymore <laughs> like the boy who yeah. cried wolf the first couple times i was like oh no what am i gonna do and then ever since then it's like yeah okay kevin sure get back to me <laughs> yeah whatever kevin yep so that's happening i'm excited well cool and i guess we have some music right yeah we have some music um I'm going to use uh, Brad Smith, who's just finishing up Blizzard right now. Um, he has actually transcribed Pink Floyd's entire uh, Dark Side of the Moon album uh, as if it were written on the NES, um, and he did a really good job with it, so I wanted to feature uh, one of the songs from that just to sort of get it some more exposure, um, even though I'm sure most people know about it by now. 
Um, but if you don't, you can go to his website, rainwarrior.ca, um, and there's a, a page set up there that you can check out uh, the information of, you know, why he wrote it, uh, when he wrote it, um, and you can download, you know, an NES file or an NSF if you want to listen to it. Um, but he's also linked it to some uh, YouTube videos um, that he has of each song up. Um, so if you want to go there and check it out. Uh, but the song I want to feature is called Brain Damage, uh, and it is from the end of toward the end of the dark side of the moon um but if you're familiar with the album uh you will recognize it right away uh and if not i definitely encourage you to check it out uh but regardless here is brad smith's version see you guys next time thanks bye